Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhop. And and this is Sadie Abuhop. There she is. And yes. Granger oh. Abuhop. And Nicole has won. <laughs> and and Zeke Abuhop. And Pepper Abuhop and Noel Board. There you go. And out in Noel California. Board. I'm Noel Board. I'm holding baby Pepper. Let Pepper speak for herself. Yeah, it's Let, about she needs time. To take Pepper. A nap. Pepper can't speak for herself. She has a pacifier in her mouth right now. There you go. Um, anyway, happy Thanksgiving. It's Thursday, November 26th. We're doing a family podcast uh, together across the miles, um, partly for COVID reasons and partly for people who are growing up and leaving the nest reasons. That's right. Um, but this is unusual. We're not all together. But here for a few minutes, we're together, at least uh, um, on the Zoom call. Right. Okay. And this is a, a real departure for us. We always have, uh, we generally have Thanksgiving together. We have a set together and we have a set menu. And Sadie makes sure that we have a set menu. Very little deviations. Very right. few. And everybody has their job. That's right. Their chores. I remember so. when Noel to make the pumpkin pie for the first time. There was some right. tension in the air. And so, Am I wrong, Noel? Did I, did I miscalculate? Did I misgauge that? I was uh, 12 years ago, so I don't know. I guess, I guess so. <laughs> So now for the first time I, in I 12 years. Nailed it. That's how I remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember Noel sure. doing a great job. And so now Nico had to make uh, the pumpkin pie. And uh, yours truly had to make the knot rolls. Well, we had to pick up with some of the things that, uh, you know, that Noel and Zeke used to do. Fortunately, they never did that much. So uh, ah! easy, to, easy to pick Shots up. Shots fired. Uh, but, it, but on the other hand, the on the West Coast. calling the kettle lazy. Well, I, I do nothing. Okay, I, I'll get that out there. I have no problem with that. Great. But, but you guys have a lot of ground to make up because are you making a turkey? We're doing it all over here. Uh, yeah. really? Not only we're, are they we're making a turkey. We're the entire experience. We're, they, we're doing they, everything short of having cardboard cutouts of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. You could use those. Um, we should have sent those. In fact, Noelle is using the same butternut <laughs> brining recipe for her turkey breast that I'm using for our full turkey well, from is, the New York Times. Coincidence. Yes, we all. And, and I have to say, I don't know about uh, California, Noelle. But when I went to the store to get three quarts of buttermilk to brine the turkey, the store was out of buttermilk. What oh, store runs out of buttermilk? Thanksgiving. Okay, so I'm assuming that everyone else read that article, and uh, there's a lot of buttermilk brine turkey going on, a run on in this area. Brine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I'm glad I went to the store on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, should we? Uh, let's talk about Animaniacs. Why not? Let's talk. They're back. Alphabetical order for today's topic. Yes. Well, Zeke, Zeke you know, uh, based on recent experience, why don't you frame what Animaniacs is about so that everyone can right. follow it? So, uh, 90s kids will remember that Animaniacs is an animated program. <laughs> oh, hello. Uh, yeah, Pepper objects. She doesn't remember this. But anyway, uh, from back in the 90s on the WB, WB Kids, uh, this is a, a, a cartoon featuring the Warner Brothers and sister, Yakko, Wacko, and Dot, and their wacky misadventures, uh, as well as various other uh, memorable characters, perhaps most memorable of all, Pinky and the Brain. And, uh, you know, this was much beloved at the time by a certain age group that uh, happens to encompass myself and my siblings. And then, uh, just recently, it has been rebooted, uh, courtesy of Hulu. So we are joined again by the uh, Warner Brothers and sister, 
and we kind of dropped in to see if it holds up. Noelle and I watched just the first episode. I think you folks watched the first few episodes. What did you think? I thought it was good. I mean, it's hit or miss, and that's very similar to the original. Like to me, the original had a few segments that worked and a lot that didn't. Pinky in the Brain was the best part. They eventually got spun off into their own show, and they're a big feature in the new show. And then the songs. I always like the songs, you know, and that's, uh, I think, the stronger part so far. At least I like the song about the reboot uh, phenomenon in the first episode. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Sadie, you didn't see the new one, did you? No, I did not. Oh, but you were a fan of the old one? You told me you identify with Dot? Obviously, because she has two brothers. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I was Yako. Not only, not only did she have two Wacko. brothers, but like you, they're named Wako and Yako. So yeah, you had that going. We Mr. Granger just said I it. Granger was Yako and Wako in the old country. I think yeah, once they it's Yako uh, and Wako. Sorry, Yako and Wako. My mistake. Rookie mistake. Sorry. Oh, Ranger yeah. was Yako. But no, it was, it was eminently relatable for us, for sure. It was like uh, you just like saw yourself up there in cartoon form, and you're like, oh, that's what I would do if I could survive an anvil falling on my head. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is. Uh, Basically, I didn't watch Animaniacs, so it's a satire of. Yeah, it's 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 a parody show. Parody. It's a parody show, but it's yeah, combined it's kind of with the Looney Tunes sensibility of physical comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Is that fair, Zeke? Yeah, it's like Lo- Looney Tunes, uh, like SNL via Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. I would say. <laughs> yeah, right, it's, I mean, pretty, it's pretty loose. It honestly makes very little sense as a concept. There's lots of different things they throw in there, um, but I think you said you never heard it, Ma, or never watched it, but really. Um, every week, Zeke and I would recite an entire Pink in the Brain episode to you in the car. That's true. That you know, somehow not every word of that recitation stayed with me. Um, but uh, the um, you know, uh, Dan was also mentioning that uh, he felt it was in the tradition of Mad Magazine, kind yeah. of uh, yeah. wacky yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's it, even today we watched. You know, I watched the new one, and uh, there's all these weird cultural references. Which no way any eight-year-old kid is going to pick up. I mean, uh, you guys couldn't have picked up half of them, and I guess it's for the amusement of adults. But it's a lot, you know, it's a lot going on. Yeah, and things like the uh, Pinky and the Brain, the Brain character being based on Orson Welles, who nobody knows anymore who Orson right. Welles is, uh, and yet oh, on this podcast, know who Orson Welles is. We were talking about eight-year-olds. Eight-year-olds. You know, I, I'm telling you, Zeke, ask around. Maybe not. Ask around. You're going to yeah. be disappointed. I know you're in California movie country, but. Um, You'll be surprised. Yeah, everyone gets these references. Well, it's well, a certain it's a certain style of humor, and I think that yeah, it it's gone in and out of fashion. Like Looney Tunes used to reference old Hollywood, and in their gags, it's supposed to be reminiscent of Looney Tunes. And then one of the new producers for the new show is a producer from Family Guy, which I think probably has a lot of the same yeah, sensibility. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, does the new one have songs as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so are they as witty the, uh, the as... The reboot and... song is a standout from the first episode in which they mock the uh, lack of originality and in the intellectual property selected for development these days in Hollywood. Of course, poking at them, poking fun at themselves uh, along the way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. How ironic. And I know Sadie relies heavily on the Bone song from the old uh, Animaniacs, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you learned. Yes. It's yeah, almost like, like the, uh, what was it, Schoolhouse Rock? Yeah. It's almost like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, they had some good songs about like all the countries in the world, all the planets, all the states, all the presidents. Yeah, that was the best yeah. part. All right, good. So we'll look forward to seeing more of that. All right. We, we have to just mention we had a big excitement this week. Big excitement doesn't even begin to describe the situation. <laughs> it's a big excitement. We, we had... Um, uh, no, no, the no, other night, was it like Sunday night? It's Sunday night, but, but Nico Sunday has night. to describe because we're sitting there watching TV. You had gone to bed and Nico wanders bed. around, probably get a snack, God knows. And what do we yeah, hear from Nico? But what did you say, Nico? I was like, hey, guys, did uh, did we buy an owl statue? What? There's something over here. In and, the living uh, room, there seemed to the be an owl room. statue. And then what did the owl statue do? The owl statue moved. It looked at me as I was walking. And then I squealed and I said, guys, you need to come over here. And then um, both Granger and Dan uh, reluctantly, very reluctantly, <laughs> came and peeked their head through the door as to not get too close to this like seven-inch owl. It was a real owl. That was dead. It was a real owl in our living room, and thank goodness we were able to rouse the uh, animal control people, which were namely Tamsin, and got her involved in the situation. If That's they another yeah, loose, it's, it's, loose it's, use of we. Allegedly. <laughs> Nico out. said, what should we do? Get mom? <laughs> <laughs> and we all agreed. Yeah. We all agreed. That was the yeah, way to go. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I said, we, we should get Tamsin. I think we should get Tamsin. <laughs> that's right. I mean, let's face it. If it was like a lion or a gorilla, sure, Granger and I would be the right people. But, but it's a small thing, you know. Well, but, no, but here, what happened... What happened was that mom then assigned me to get rid of the owl. Yeah. So whoa, 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 she woke whoa, whoa, up to delegate. Well, first of all, we should note, it was... An exquisite creature. It was Gorgeous. truly, truly beautiful. This wonderful rusty brown, I would mm-hmm. say eight or nine inches uh, tall, mm-hmm. with little tufty ear things, and uh, really exquisite, I have to say. Yeah. And uh, so we, um, I tried to walk up to it, but it flew away and went on the bookshelf. Yeah. And then, you know, cleverly, people Googled. Well, people, let's go back and to, let's uh, give credit they said, where you know, here. you. Uh, so I, here, here's what I did. I Googled and how to get rid of an owl, and they had a video, of course, as one does, uh, a video of someone who gets rid of an owl in their living room. And I said, what you need is a Swifter mop. And somehow that came, you guys got the message that the Granger should take a mop or a broom or something and poke the owl. There's no other way to reach him. poke the owl. the owl. What did you do, He Granger? just waved the thing, and it, he, he reached towards yeah. the owl. I was hoping the owl would perch on it, right. like a sort of Disney movie situation. Yeah. But instead, the owl just ran away. So yeah, what but we did here... was we kind of opened the window, and I would just walk towards the owl with the Swiffer mop or broom. Yeah, Swiffer. Yeah, and then the owl uh, would bang into the window that was closed, and we all kind of get excited, and eventually the owl found its way out. Yeah. Yeah, the night before, in. Dan had heard strange noises in the chimney right. in that room. So we think the owl went in the chimney, got kind of stuck there, and the next day, for various reasons, I opened the, um, the flu. damper cover, opened yeah. the flue, right. and it, it was open all day, and I guess the owl somehow flew down and came out the Let's chimney just say into the living We're room. hoping the owl came in that way. Well, we do, we oh. do love owls. This is an eastern screech owl. Well, here's what's funny. Uh, well, it's all funny. But uh, the very next day, the New York Post, which uh, pulls up feature articles from all over the country, had an article about the strangest thing 
a uh, family in St. Louis, Missouri, had an owl in their living room. And th- I'm telling you, it was a story in the paper. Like, this never happens. You've got to go all the way to Missouri. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And, of course, they did contact the actual animal control unit of the local government. And they came no, by. No, no, no. They, they, they called came, it pest control. Pest people. control. Same thing. And they came by with a box and a, and a rifle and God knows what else. <laughs> and, you know, an iron uh, net. Probably, uh, you know, some... Uh, Taser. Uh, no, what are the... Um, what? Tranquilizer guns. Oh, no, no. That, that was, that's a, they would no. do that in the East Coast, not in Missouri. It was like a pool net sort of deal, and they yeah. trapped the owl against the window. They yeah, put it, was, in a box. it was a big so, thing. It was in the paper. And really, all yeah. you had to do was, was also open the window. Video. Yeah. Well, that's what... This so is, anyway... This is why we, you should have a Swiffer mom. This was quite an event. Yeah. And uh, it was a wonderful start to the Thanksgiving holiday. Okay. And we're thankful for that yes. event. All right, well, moving along now, uh, back to Christmas movies. Yes, okay. And there was an article in the New York Times about Christmastown, USA, which has a secret. And that is um, the actual town that uh, a number of Christmas movies have used as a location. And they're theoretically based in the U.S., is actually in Canada. Okay. All right. I can live with that. It's in Almonte or Almont, Ontario. And it's such a cute town that people keep coming back and making movies from, you know, from all these different groups, uh, you know, Hallmark, Lifetime, really? etc. And uh, it, it's got charming little shops and it's universal enough that it, it conjures up says Fran Drescher, mm. who's in one of the movies. You remember Fran Drescher, right, Sadie? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Okay. Um, the nanny, right? That's who Fran Drescher is? Yeah. 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 Thank um, you. It looked like something out of Courier and Ives that conjures up that kind of nostalgia that reminds us of our childhood, whether we lived that life or not, said Drescher from her beachside home in Malibu. Okay. So, um, uh, I don't know if Sadie, if you looked at these pictures, if any of this seems familiar, but apparently it's been in a number of movies. Well, I, I do know that Hallmark films most of their films in Canada, so that does not surprise me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess Canada, Canada is. Well, just, but here's uh, the question, Sadie: If you've seen more than one Hallmark movie, does it always seem like it's in the same town? Well, there are different premises. Some premises are in a city. Some premises are in the you know. In the country or something, so it's not like everything is happening in the same town. Not many have a specific location. Yeah, that would be expensive. Okay, so anyway, if you if you want a place that really looks like America, apparently you have to go to Canada. All right. So there you have it. All right. So you know, we wanted to follow up. Uh, Tamsin was going on about uh, a book by Dodie. Is it Dodie Smith? Mm-hmm. Uh, I captured the castle, so uh, we went and saw the movie. Based on a captain. We didn't go and see the movie. Well, we we went conjured to the it up. We, we went to the room next to the Streamed the movie. <laughs> we saw the movie. And, uh, and so it had a bunch of people in it. Bill, Bill Nye. Bill Nye. And uh, Henry Cavill. That's Superman. 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 Yeah, Superman, Superman and so on. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, um, placed in the 1930s mm-hmm. in England. And uh, it was charming. Yeah. It was okay. You know, I love the book much more, I have to say. The book, uh, the um, story is written through the eyes of one of the main characters, Cassandra. And uh, it just had many more layers. And, and 
was able to really convey the way she saw things and looked at things, which was interesting and charming and quirky. And I didn't think uh, came across. But anyway, um, if you're into uh, 1930s, 40s uh, literature, British uh, yeah. literature, it was a you British, might enjoy it. Yeah, I, you know, I thought it was worth seeing. It was an uh, interesting story, a coming-of-age story about a girl in hard times and uh, very, with a very odd family. Very odd family. The, the thing that always gets me about a, a lot of these um, British uh, novels is that they're about finding the rich man, finding, well, finding the rich spouse. Well, yes, this was about okay, that, sure. To support you. Right. And, uh, and it's just a normal preoccupation, you know, and nobody's embarrassed to, you know, be doing it. Mm-hmm. And it just seems so odd to me. But that's often the often the theme. Yeah. Well, there is some tension as to whether that's a legitimate thing to do, even in this movie. So it's right. not as if they missed the issue entirely. And then also this week we saw the um, first episode of a miniseries uh, by Rumor Godden, from the based on the book by Rumor Godden, Black Narcissus. Right. Um, which uh, is crazy. Yeah, it's about uh, founding a convent. Um, well, they're founding a school. There's a convent in, in some place in India. Right. And they're going to, in, in, as if that's not remote enough, and believe me, it's pretty remote to begin with, to decide they want to start a school in uh, some, I don't know, several miles away, up a mountain. It looks like Shangri-La. And they're going to go to this previously uninhabited castle and start a school. For well, it locals. had been inhabited. It had been actually the seraglio for... Some you know wealthy Shah or somebody. Right. It had been abandoned. Since. It had been abandoned because a tragic thing happened yeah, there, it was, and it was and, very uh, spooky. You know, is it haunted? Ooh, Ooh. I don't know. Um, so anyway, so that's Black Narcissus, and yeah, well, the Black Narcissus. It's a series on FX and Hulu. Yeah, Hulu, yeah FX. You can get it on Hulu. You pick it up. Um, the funny thing is that it was. Uh, uh, you know, there come a couple interesting people in that, and it's uh, several episodes, and it's probably worth seeing, and it's filmed in Nepal on location, and we're watching this thing, and we're saying, is this digital? Is this like watching Lord of the Rings? Because the, the backgrounds are unbelievable, and we convinced ourselves, I convinced myself, that it was digital, because it seemed impossible, and it turns out they went to Nepal, and they filmed there, and that's what it looks like. It's, it's pretty amazing. They, I should also say there's a movie that's a great movie that was done in the 40s on the same book called Black Narcissus, that was by Powell and Pressburger. But just so people aren't confused, this is a miniseries. Yeah, and that is worth seeing. Yeah, that's a great... Well, um, sounds like uh, Pepper wants us to move on. Yes, let's move on. (laughs) So uh, Pepper wants to talk about the Gilmore Girls. Yeah. As as one does. And uh, we have... This is the 20th anniversary of the start of the Gilmore Girls. 20 years. Amazing. It's it's happened uh, so fast. October 5th, apparently. And... um, they did a, uh, whoever was researching this, the reporter, when they called people up uh, who were in the cast and mentioned that, pretty much the answer was, oh, now you now we really feel old. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about this, old? So, so what do you think of this article, Say, I mean, it didn't have much of a perspective. It was just about how... Uh, successful Gilmore Girls was and how popular it was which I agree with well popular. apparently it wasn't popular when it came out well they say in the article that, that, that most of it's uh, Netflix uh, fame developed after I mean when you think about it though with this 
the um the TV shows of that era, they didn't have the streaming possibilities. They didn't have like all the options that we have today. So a lot of stuff is popular now because people can see it in many different ways. I think when it happened at the time, it was a popular show on the CW. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, it was funny. It was very distinctive. I didn't watch it at the time. I know you did, but you kind of filled me in later. I've watched some of it since. And the style is very distinctive. The characters are very fast talking. They make the point in the article that it would be 10 pages of dialogue for uh, five or 10 minutes. It normally would only be three pages of dialogue. And it's filled with all these cultural, excuse me, cultural references. Mm-hmm. One after another, after another, another. And it's almost a game to try to keep up with all the cultural references. And they credit the lead, Lauren Graham, because they said that's just not easy to do. Uh, and she was working with, I guess, Alexis Fidel, I think, because who played her daughter who was very inexperienced. And, and at one point, the woman who was the mother says to uh, Lauren after a break, after a take, saying, you know, I love the way you stay in character. You always keep your arm gently on, you know, the elbow of Alexis because she's your daughter. She says, no, my arm's on Alexis because she never knows where to stand. And I'm constantly trying to put her in the right position. Well, trying to help her make her mark. But uh, that, you know, that made us kind of a totally, this fast-talking cultural reference thing. I've never seen anything else like it. Have you? Is there any other show like it? Um, I don't know. Well, not the not the pop. Animaniacs. Animaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is. Oh, you're right. But it is of that genre, like uh, fast-talking West Wing kind of. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, on that note. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. On that note, there was something that came out in E! recently that uh, uh, Lauren Graham and Scott Patterson quit smoking for the show. Oh, yeah. It says um, that in the article, too. Yeah, yeah. Because they because... felt that they created the show with that because they felt that smoking hindered them from like delivering all this dialogue so quickly. Right. They couldn't. They literally that's didn't have the stamina in their lungs needed to deliver all the lines well but it you know it was not successful during its it got no emmys no no emmy nominations nominations. um it was pretty much ignored well it was a girl show but like none of if you think about the genre it was in none of the shows on the cw or wb ever got emmy nominations so to me that's not surprising i think they saw it as like a teen drama which it was yeah, yeah, but can't teen no, but dramas she, even excel no, but no, in their but Sadie own? Sadie has a point, and she said this to me before. It was on the WB it was a network, uh, on the CW, it was not taken seriously. I think by virtue of where it was, it wasn't wow. taken seriously. Uh, and I guess we should mention that the, the main uh, the showrunner, Amy Palladino, is of course the person who's the force behind the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So, uh, and Bunheads. And Bunheads. But, but I mean, yeah. if, you go, if you take a look at the, cla- the cast... The cast is wildly successful today. You have Alexis Bledel, who is in Sister of the Traveling Pants and like so many other things. You have Melissa McCarthy, who is a superstar today. Superstar. Yes. Superstar. You have, um, who am I forgetting right now? Um, the list goes Milo, on. <laughs> Milo Ventigliamato, who is on um, This Is Us and he was on Heroes after that. You have Dean I forget his real name, Jared Padalecki, who was on Supernatural for like a million years. They have all gone on to have really successful careers. Lauren Graham was on Parenthood for, you know, the whole run. Does it still hold up? Can you watch it? Or is it like Animaniacs? I mean, I'm watching it right now. I'm in the sixth season. This is probably my (laughs) fourth time going through it. Um, I think it holds up. It does miss the the mark on some of the... um, uh, 
like sensitivities of today. Like you could say it's not as diverse as it would be if it was cast today. And there's from time to time, uh, like a some sort of a quasi homophobic comment. You know, like in the '90s or 2000s, it wouldn't be considered that offensive. But I think if you said it today, yeah. it would be a l- frowned upon. Yeah, right. Well, you see that kind of stuff all the time with all those shows. Right. Like, even like they say, for example, the, Friends doesn't hold up at all today because it has a lot of, um, you know, non-PC references. So the center of the show is really, it's about a mother and daughter relationship. Right. They're mother and daughter, but they're also best friends. Right. And the tensions that can result um, because uh, the mother had uh, the daughter at a very young age. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess they summed up the fans in like either... Um, people who had that kind of relationship with their mother or daughter or, on the other hand, people who wish they had that kind of relationship. I mean, for me, I'm literally the same age as Rory, so I found it very relatable from that perspective. I graduated mm-hmm. from high school the same year as she did. I graduated from college the same year as she did. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And plus, mm-hmm. you have a young mother. Yeah, Not that young. <laughs> Yes. All right, let, yeah, let's just not go there. Oh. <laughs> um, all, right. all right, so moving well, right saying, along. Uh, I was saying to oh, what? I was saying to Granger and Nico when they came that I hope to have a Lorelai and Rory relationship with Pepper because who doesn't want to be best friends with their daughter? Okay. We'll see if that pans out, but... <laughs> Oh, is it, yeah, that was yeah, Pepper chiming in. You're not, you're not having Pepper's her in. age 15. Pepper's in. So. Pepper's in. No, I, can, it was, I, yeah. I can see you and uh, Pepper watching Animaniacs together, Noel. <laughs> you know, we did that today. So, accurate. Okay. Um, so, we we're just going to talk about uh, Ina Garten, a, a departure. Did I pronounce that right? Is it Ina Garten? Right. Good. Well, there's a lot of cooking going on this month. Yeah. A lot of cooking articles, I guess, uh, compared to other months, I think. And there was a huge article in the New York Times, the title of which, in the print version, Quarantine Can't Stop the Queen of Cuisine, written by Julia Moskin. And um, it's a big spread about Ina. I have to say the cover picture is not terribly flattering uh, of Ina. Um, And, you know, Ina's a popular cook. She has a real popular show. She's had 18 uh, seasons on the Food Network. She has published 12 cookbooks Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the last 18 years, which means that she's 72 now. So uh, she started this business, you know, um, a little bit later in life. Uh, anyway, I love Ina. Sadie mm-hmm. actually gave me a set of dish towels that have the quote, what would Ina do uh, really? on them? Okay. And uh, I enjoy her show. And in fact, uh, but this article is a little snarky. I mean, this article is just weird. Um, first of all, there's a there's an, an odd thing... Um, uh, her official this is what it says about her Facebook page her official fan cubs page on Facebook is not a group that just anyone can join first supplicants that's right supplicants must make it clear that they are um, part of the Ina personality cult by answering two key questions 
What is the name of her husband? Jeffrey. And what? What is the one herb she cannot bear? Well, that one I don't know. But if I would speak for myself, it would be. See, I would say it would be. Dill, but I think she likes cilantro. 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 Well, she's that's always saying, yes, she, I know that. She can't taste, taste cilantro. And uh, whenever she's making something that call, usually calls for cilantro, she said, you can add it if you want, but it just tastes like grass clippings to me. If you replied Jeffrey and cilantro before even reading the questions to the end, congratulations. You too are an Ina super fan. And then, let me just read this, and then I'll... Um, Speed it up. As a reporter, I have spent a lot of time over the same years wondering exactly how a wealthy woman with no unique culinary skill or television shtick built such a diverse and devoted following. That's fire. Wow. Wow. And then she said, then she goes on to say, what she brings to the screen is enthusiasm of a student and authority of an expert. Okay. I think this person has never heard of Martha Stewart before. Like, and how is Martha Stewart more relatable than Ina? You know what I mean? Like, maybe she hates Martha Stewart too. I don't know, but it's just uh, she really is um, pretty tough, and people love Ina. I mean, and there are other remarks that that um, she makes. Um, if what you want from a cooking teacher is to get dinner on the table in 30 minutes while also exploring a global pantry, Ms. Garden is not your go-to television chef. If what you want is to cook food the way they do at upscale bistros where you've already spent your disposable income, she is very probably for you. I think that's, I don't like that comment. I, because I, I think the 30-minute chefs have, you know, an appeal to them. You watch Rachel Ray all the time, and you've used her recipes, and that has a certain appeal. But then there's also the appeal of, like, if you do want to set up chicken stock and you want to do some of that prep work on the weekend or something, then that's an Ina thing. But also... Oh, I just blanked out. I had something good to say. Well, let me just say this. I use <laughs> Ina's recipes. If I'm trying to... Um, if I want to cook something, and I know I... And it's not that exotic, but it's nice, right? And I need it to work. I go to her version because I know it will work. That's not a surprise. And and this article even describes why that is. When she writes a recipe, she develops it. Develops it. Then she has an assistant who's a home cook type person, not professionally trained, who tries to follow the recipe. And they, you know, and they see where the problems are where it needs to be tweaked for the reader and then they have a professional um you know uh, finalize it and style it for photography okay mm -hmm. so it is you know really crafted to be a good usable recipe and uh you know this person is very snotty about that you know well she has all these assistants so of course you know and and she goes on to say and so all the recipes are pretty much the same. But when they go to do this article and they're trying to style stuff, they call her and say, do you, you know, do you have any uh, multicolored carrots we could use for the pictures? And she says, well, I'm the barefoot contessa. Of course I do. 
but uh, the way the way that's written, it's kind of uh, a knock on poor Ina. That first uh, of all, you know, any chef who's writing or cook or whatever who's writing a book, a cookbook, they have several assistants. So the the fact that they're knocking her for having an assistant is bizarre because everyone who does it has assistants. And also, her big motto is store-bought is fine. In all of her episodes, she's always kind of doing half really homemade, and then she'll be like, oh, and you need stuffed olives for this martini, store-bought is fine. You know, she always kind of has this combination <laughs> of store-bought and completely homemade. So I find her a lot less snobby than some of the alternatives Whereas, like, as someone who grew up with Martha Stewart, who, watching one of her shows, literally made her own graham crackers to build a s'more, like, you compare <laughs> that to Ina Garden, and you find Ina Garden very relatable. Right, right. And, uh, well, really, who I wants to do that? I tell you, as an outsider, to hear you talk about it, it sounds like she's, she's a very useful resource for you. She is a very useful which resource. Which is all that matters. And actually, I, I was reading a... Um, it's well known that professional cooks are the worst recipe writers in the world. Is that right? Because the techniques you use, the quantities you use, the, you know, the supplies you use are just nothing like what a home cook can use. Mm-hmm. Okay? Plus, they're not especially interested in writing it um, so a home cook could do it. So they're right. usually very often completely um, right. not usable. Uh, so, you know, um, I have to say, I went to the New York Times uh, digital version of the article mm-hmm. and looked up comments mm-hmm. online. Yeah. And there were, mi- not millions, there were, uh, uh, when I looked, there were 800 comments. And that was in the first day it came out. And they were all extremely positive and pretty Ina. much ignored all the snide remarks. In positive about Ina. Positive about Ina, saying, you know, you know, I depend on her recipes. I love her recipes. They work. Uh, you know, I love her. She's very comforting. She's fun to watch. One man described it, uh, Ina as his uh, cooking girlfriend while his wife was... Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> no, he no was, was saying anything. He, he was in charge. No, he was in charge of the cooking because his wife had to work late uh, or something, and uh, right, well, he struck up a relationship with her TV show. All right. Well, okay. Well, anyway, that so one complete. I just thought that was weird. Um, you know, this is. I think I get the. I get the feeling this person who wrote this article doesn't cook much. Yeah. And certainly never well, watched that. It also sounds like they're saying that she, oh, how did she get to be famous just because she's rich? But also, she has all these assistants, <laughs> and she does a good job, and she has all this help. So you're sort of like, what is the... Yeah, it's sort of, it's, yeah they seem to it's object like to the concept of Like, yeah. I don't know. She, she has oh, she a has business. hair and makeup. <laughs> she has a well-lit set. Well, well, but the thing <laughs> is... There's all kinds of advantages. Well, the other thing is true. I mean, she's not the most glamorous looking person in the world. If but I you love that. her. You love her. I understand. I mean, that's what makes her more relatable, I suppose. But also, she had a legitimate food business for many years. So if you compare her to some of the like the Instagram chefs that are popping up that are only famous because they post things online, like you got to give Ina credit for the fact that she was actually a professional chef and had her food business for many years. Yeah. Like she didn't just Well, she doesn't see nowhere. herself as a professional chef. Yeah. But as a cook. She's a resource. I'll go for that. That's all that matters, I think, when I hear you talk about her. I mean, all right. So we have, uh, there was also was an article about kimchi. Well, speaking of cooking. Yeah. And so uh, 
And a lot of people are into kimchi these days. I know that Nico and I use kimchi a fair amount, right, Nico? Yeah, we love the kimchi pancakes. Yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, kimchi is a Korean, uh, what would you call it? Fermented uh, cabbage. Pickled cabbage. It's pickled cabbage, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a version of sauerkraut, but uh, it's it's, a cabbage that is pickled with uh, a hot chili sauce. And Mm -hmm. uh, notoriously, people store it in a whole in a crock in the hole in the ground well, in their yard you, you, or something. You can't. I mean, that's the traditional Korean way. And the article was about traditional Korean development of kimchi and the idea of people getting together at what's called a kimjang and making kimchi together. And they're doing that in several villages in Korea in order to further the, the tradition of making kimchi and make some money selling ingredients. Well, it's a, well, it's a very important condiment in Korean cooking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you can eat it. On its own, but you add it to things, like yeah. you know, to you know, spice things up or yeah. whatever. But the problem is, um, at least people are making less of it on their own. Right. It's cumbersome to make, shall we say? Well, look, you did. And it used to be there was a mother-in-law who would make you know hundreds of pounds. And then you'd store it. You use it for you the store, whole year. You store it okay. by burying it, or you buy a kimchi refrigerator. Now, now, they, and and they all say it's never. You know, the commercial brands are never as good right. as your mother's or your mother-in-law or whatever your family recipe. Also, uh, a huge amount, at least thirty percent of the commercial brands actually come from China. Right. Uh, so it's not even Korean kimchi. Um, so there's this great movement going on. Where, um, especially in one town in Korea, they have kind of a business where, you know, during the cabbage harvest season, uh, people come and make kimchi. And the people, the townspeople or whatever, or certain farmers, prepare the cabbage, prepare the chili paste, and show people how to mix it up together. And uh, they, you know, they pay a certain fee, come there. Uh, make the kimchi and go home with the pounds and pounds of kimchi to put in their kimchi refrigerator. Right. So, well, we could maybe we could get something going here in the U.S. I don't know if there's enough of a uh, enough enthusiasm for that. But you're right. It's it's a it's a um, it's sort of a cultural phenomenon. Um, in fact, you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about borscht being, um, yeah. you know, possibly getting, um, you know, being added to UNESCO's lit- list. On the what do you call it? Intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Right. Uh, kimchi is vying for the same kind of honor, but uh, you know it. You know it fulfills a need uh, for both the income of these small towns who produce the cabbage right. and the more urban, you know, upstarts who want the homemade well, uh, kimchi. Listen, as long as there are folks like Nico who are continue to put kimchi and recipes and make stuff. But Nico, what surprised you about some of the kimchi recipes? Well, some of them, like some homemade recipes would add raw oyster. Yeah, there's often a a secret ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. So this family decided that raw oysters was their secret ingredient. And that just seems like a lot, like a a little bit much for me. But, you know, there were, there were, everyone is saying like they, uh, like Dan was saying, they have the ingredients there and... Uh, then you make it at the uh, workshop, the Kim Jong workshop. Um, but a lot of families would come and bring their secret ingredient to add in addition to their 
regular kimchi normal you know recipe right well the so the oyster thing seems problematic um, yeah. And weird yeah. to yeah, us. That sounds okay. like but also then there was yeah, one person. Stomach flu was, city. Somebody else was. <laughs> their family adds pumpkin and white forsythia extract. Oh yeah, they say it to makes make it, it toastier, sweet, spicy, and crisp. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, that was fun to read about. A little more insight into the world of kimchi, which does seem very exotic to us. And to be honest, we just buy the jar. Yeah. Can we, can we make other things once a year and put it in a giant tub and have it enough for the rest of the year? I like that idea. Sauerkraut. When people talk about like you know making stuff in batches, say, oh, you've got it for the whole week. Well, I say that's they not do enough. Them I need it for the tomatoes. whole year. Yeah. Zeke, there's a tradition of canning you know, where people harvest their vegetables from the garden, put them in jars or whatever, and have them in their pantry. For the rest of the year. That. No, well, we have we have plants. We have a little garden. You've got your garden going. Can you can you fill the pantry? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. In Good. between, in between, uh, caring for a two-month-old baby and uh, putting together Thanksgiving, I'll just uh, throw that together. Welcome to Little House on the Prairie. You know, Zeke, you really <laughs> led with your chin on that one. I can't believe it. <laughs> Lack of self awareness. up to the challenge. Yeah, yeah, I, I have faith in Noel. I think she can do it. Okay, moving right along here. Yes, so a couple, and we'll end with a couple of obituaries. One was David Dinkins passed away, the ex-mayor of New York. I know that Granger was impressed that uh, Dinkins was such a huge tennis enthusiast and, and actually managed to have constructed during his regime the tennis center. Um, yeah, yeah, so I was like, a, you know, David Dinkins has a bunch of articles written about him. I'm just going to comment on the tennis part. I guess the stadium is Arthur, the Arthur Ashe Center, and... Um, I was just really interested that David Dinkins viewed that as an important venture, that tennis was important to him personally. He played until he was 87 years old, uh, which I think is pretty impressive. If you've met someone who's 87, you know, you don't think, oh, like you probably played devil's tennis. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. He really believed that people's values were enhanced by playing sports and that also like diversity in sports really helped give people, uh, you know, exposure to other groups of people. So I thought all oh, that was laudable, and you know I know people disagree somewhat on the stadium, but I think the stadium in general landed in uh, a place that was more more city friendly in general compared with a lot of the other uh, baseball deals, where you know basically it's it's paid for by the tennis people and some inconvenience to the city. But um, that aside, I just was interested that he seemed to think that tennis was a force for positive values and that like people, you know, and, and the tennis should be more diverse. And that he personally loved the game so much. Well, so that was just interesting. Well, Sadie and I have been to. The tennis center, correct, Sadie? This is Arthur Ashe Stadium. Exactly. And what's it, Louis Armstrong Stadium? Yes, because we've gone to the U.S. Open. Have we gone once or twice, Sadie? I can't remember now. Once, because someone had a wedding during last year's, unfortunately. Yeah, that would be And then be this year's was not happening, so. Yeah. But it was, I have to say, I was pretty impressed with the tennis center, weren't you, Sadie? It seemed to work pretty well. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's clean and big and very upscale. The great thing about tennis is that the people who go to tennis matches are very civilized. So it's a much different, you know, experience going to like a Philadelphia Eagles game to going to the U.S. Open. <laughs> well, but did, but uh, Granger was, uh, I don't really know much about uh, David Dinkins. Was it, um, did he feel it was important for, you know, to develop, that it would help develop like racial diversity in the sport? By the interest he took in it, or 
Yeah, so he founded, uh, so there's a youth organization founded by Arthur Ashe that was trying to get more um, tennis inclusion of, from other groups. And he supported that organization. Um, and then he also seemed to think that like by having other, well, two things, by having people play tennis, their lives would be enhanced, these young people from these different diverse groups. And also it would be a way for other people to be exposed to diverse groups if those if, if everyone was you know playing tennis and everyone was involved in tennis just like a common space i mean at the end of the day it's bringing a major tournament to queens so mm-hmm. that's pretty exciting yeah yeah and it's a it's a nice facility and you know what they always comment on with respect to tennis crowds is that tennis is the one sport where the people who are attending the events seem to dress as if they were going to play i i observed that <laughs> and to be honest Yourself included, you wore a white polo shirt when we went, and that's something like an old school tennis player would wear. It's uh, yeah, I'm surprised I wasn't confused with some of the actual players, but uh, I managed to get through. Yeah, you're the only person confused about that. But when you're watching Roger Federer, you don't get confused with him. <laughs> anyway, yeah. All right, all right. So finally, um, there was one. Uh, Tamsin pointed out to me there was an obituary today about Ian Finkel, the world's greatest. A xylophonist. Xylophonist. Uh, yeah. I don't think you have to say the X. Xylophone. Really? In fact, yeah. I think it's frowned upon. Yes. I thought I said it exactly right. No. Um, Ranger, was that right? Well, xylophonist. No, yeah. no, you said yes. it exactly no right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I get it, Z. But the point is... He, he himself claimed he was the world's greatest. Because there weren't too many other ones. He had a lot of shtick, and he, he, was, he was not, uh, even though he played classical music as well as other music, he wasn't that serious about it. And uh, he used to kid around a lot. But yeah, it, he was a comedian and the world's greatest xylophonist. Xylophonist. But, of course, he came, and it turns out, here's what was interesting to me, he came by that honestly because his father was Fievel Finkel. And Fievel Finkel? Finkel? Yeah. Fievel like the mouse? Fievel, as in Fievel Finkel. Fievel Finkel is famous enough that I don't have to explain. Everyone knows who Fievel Finkel is. And, uh, <laughs> Not really. Yeah, oh, sure. Uh, and, uh, no, Fievel Finkel So this was, is a New York family? Was a, yes, was a star of the Yiddish state. There used to be a Yiddish theater, which they actually had. And didn't he, he traveled west with a group of friends? On like a covered wagon. <laughs> no, that's a different. Fievel. That's a different Fievel. <laughs> different Fievel. So I think that's where they got the name Fievel. What was the name of that uh, Disney movie? Fievel Goes West. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I think it was. I think that was spelled Fievel with an E. This is Fievel with a U. But my point is that it was a showbiz family, and the Yiddish theory used to be a big thing. Uh, so Fievel. What was the joke in the Fievel, in the Finkel family? Yeah. Well, here's the joke in the Finkel family, which I think is great. And this is, uh, this is from the daughter of Ian Finkel. He said, the joke in our family goes, you have to audition to become a Finkel. Because? Well, I don't think we have to explain it because they're all in show business. So the question that I we have... I think you have to mention they're all in show business. Yes. Well, the question is, now having gone through this, do you feel you have to audition to become a grab you off? That's the question that we have in front of us now. I mean, that's a deep question that can go many different ways, but I think Pepper passed the audition. <laughs> and that's all we have to worry about. Okay. All right. Well, all right, that is well, what matters. You know, pass your audition, Pepper? To be honest, uh, any sounds? We're going to. We got to get back to the cooking. Is that right? Yeah, right, Sadie. Yeah, we're way behind. Way behind, and uh, so uh, next up, uh, uh, Noel and I are going to have a FaceTime call and work on uh, some uh, knot rolls together across the miles. But, that, but that's not on the podcast. That's a separate. That's not on the podcast. Okay. Right. You know, next year we're working in development. 
we're working on an Arthur Schwartz-esque Tamsin Granger cooking show, but you know that's in development now. We don't have a lot of details to share there, so maybe in the okay, future. That's that's really inside baseball, see? No, no, no. I think uh, we're looking forward to it. But extra points for those who get the references. Look at look at Pepper. I'm looking at Pepper on the Zoom call. She's so sad not to see her grandmother. She looks fascinating. She looks ready to make some nut rolls. Okay. All right. But uh, enough said here. All right. So this is uh, Dan Abuoff. Tamsin Granger. And, and a cast of cast zillions. Of thousands. Yes. <laughs> Wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving 2020. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Right. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And a maniacs. We got paper, plane contracts. We're zany to the max. We're baloney in our slacks. We're in a maniac.